0: Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the sports stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Young. Each week, Brian and I will
1: be choosing a story from this week in sports history. And this episode, uh, we're going to cover two different topics
0: from February 26th to March 4th. Typically, we're also drinking a few cold beers and since we're recording in the morning, we're drinking mimosas today and we'll touch on some of the current sports topics. Looking like it's going to be baseball today as we're getting into spring training. All right, so a good baseball fact for us to start
1: the show then. Tony Gwynn, he had 10,232 plate appearances over the course of his career. Over those 10,000 plate appearances, he fell behind in the count 0-2 only 709 times, or about 6.9%. So when he was in an 0-2 count, he still managed to hit 267, which was higher than the league average during his playing time.
0: I mean yeah so first of all first and foremost uh rest in peace to Tony Gwynn um but he was arguably the greatest contact hitter of all time I I, I mean I don't know about arguably um was just phenomenal but that stat is pretty wild um actually to kind of go along with that I've I've seen this stat a few times before and I just looked it up but Pete Rose again is all-time hit leader um yeah
1: 4,000 something yeah
0: some 4,200 Some some serious number um and so he's again he's argued to be possibly the greatest contact hitter of all time but pete rose could return to baseball go 750 for 750 hit and tony Gwynn would still have a higher career batting average <laughs> that's absurd yeah so i mean i'm not surprised one bit tony Gwynn was just an absolutely phenomenal um phenomenal contact hitter played on a whole lot of bad teams. Um I really respect his loyalty. I mean he spent 19, I think almost 20 years, 20 seasons with the Padres. Uh batted 338 over 20 years.
1: His lowest batting average was his I guess his rookie year here in 1982, he hit 289.
0: <laughs> and that today would be like one of the top 10 in the league.
1: Yeah, All-Star. And then yeah. 94 is his highest season where he hits 394,
0: which is absolutely unheard of. Unheard of. I think, I mean, that only that there's only a few guys maybe that have gone better than that. And Ted Williams, I think, is the only one I can think of off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, that's all I got for over 400. So, I don't
0: know of anyone else. So Tony Gwynn is a, a guy that I personally think is a – you need more of him in baseball, but he – so he had 3,141 hits in his career. Of that, only 135 of those were home runs. Over 20 years, he had 130 home runs. Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, true contact hitter
1: gets the ball in play a lot, make the defense, make the play. And he's, I mean, looking at his stolen base numbers here, he also had 56 stolen bases in 1987. So he clearly had some speed behind him. Sure yeah. He's beating out a lot of those, some of those balls that might not, that other guys are getting thrown out on. He's making it to first. And oh yeah. On base. I mean.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. He was a, uh, I mean, uh, a real threat. He developed some power later in his career, but he only averaged just over six home runs a season throughout his career um and of those with 3141 hits actually had 1100 1138 rbis so it's kind of an he's kind of an anomaly there's not many people like him because i know, you know ted williams again like i said is probably known for putting the bat on the ball but he definitely hit a lot more home runs than him i guarantee he had a lot more rbis as well um yeah 521 home runs on 2654 hits with 1800 rbis and a 344 career average so he's actually only six points ahead of uh, of Tony Gwynn. And has more homers and a significant amount of more RBIs. Uh, yeah, he has 700 more RBIs and um, almost 400 more home runs. So Tony Gwynn is definitely uh, a bit of an anomaly. It's, it's very fascinating. And like I said, I really respect his commitment to a small-town team, a small market at the time. I mean, San Diego's not a small town. but They were a small market, and they were never very good during his career. But he stuck it out, took less money to stay with them, um, a lot of respect for him. And then he ended up, ended up coaching San Diego state, the, the Aztecs. Okay. I didn't know Um, that. for, for quite a bit. Uh, I think up until he passed away back in 2014. Um, well, cause he, he went to San Diego state, actually played baseball and basketball while he was there. Okay. Makes sense. Um, and then went back there to coach. Um, he became the head coach there and spent time as an analyst, uh, before passing away of salivary gland cancer due to uh heavy, heavy chewing tobacco use. um, so, R.I.P. to Tony Gwynn. Awesome fact, Tom. Way to start this off.
1: Hey, thanks. Most hits he had in a season was 220. That was in 1997. So more towards like the tail end of a career of his career at age 37.
0: He was incredibly consistent. Um, I, I mean, there's no ifs ands or buts around it. And I mean, with leading off of the baseball fact, I mean it's it's hard to hard to ignore the fact that spring training is here. We're about to be kicking full gear into a nice long baseball season where. A lot of exciting stories and a lot going on in the world of baseball right now. Couldn't
1: be happier. It's my favorite time of year. You got baseball, college basketball is wrapping up. You got the tournament coming oh, up yeah, as March well. Madness. The Masters in about a month, month and a half, early April. It's just, and then NHL playoffs, NBA playoffs towards the end of their season. Oh, yeah. into the gear with them.
0: Those There's, are ramping up. And if you're like me, I know you mentioned you're not really, but like the MLS is kicking off. And, um, you know, I know that not everybody loves the MLS, but I'm a big union guy. They, they kick off their first game. They've kicked off their first game. Um, there's So there's a lot. It's a really... For the fact that it's February, it's actually a really great time for sports, uh, especially if you're baseball fans like us, hockey fans. Uh, the Sabres are looking really good right now. They're in a wild card spot. Tage Thompson's about to hit 40 goals for the season, and they got hey, 25 games left. Turn into a stud up there in Buffalo. Absolute monster. It's awesome. I'm hoping to catch a game at some point when I go back home. Uh, hopefully I can get there before the end of the year. I haven't been to a Sabres game in years, but...
1: Yeah, maybe it'd be easier if we can go check a Flyers Sabres game out. Oh, sure tickets. Actually, much
0: I'm pretty sure Flyers and Sabres is coming up here in March. Um, so we'll look into that. Obviously don't need to do that. I don't need to look right now. Yeah, Sabres Flyers. Um they're coming up March seventeenth. Oh, damn, I'm coming home. I'll be in San Antonio. Or coming home that day. So depending on how my flight gets back. I'll be I'll be down by the state stadium.
1: We'll just have to cancel a trip then. Yeah,
0: cancel my let my let my boss know that I
1: can't go. Sorry, I got uh, Flyers Sabers t- uh, plans. Right.
0: Hey, so Tom, real quick, I wanted to ask you. So the um, I know we kind of touched on it before we start recording, but the MLBs released their top 100 players. Seven Phillies are on the list. Okay, makes um, sense. the highest ranked is uh, Trey Turner at 11, which newest edition. Yeah, yeah. So of the in the league, so this is actually fascinating. It shows how good the NL East is. The MLB ranked eight, eight players from the Astros and the Mets on the top 100. Seven came from the Braves, and the seven each from the Braves and the Phillies and the Blue Jays. And then the Padres and the Yankees had six apiece. So out of the top 100, you had 16 from two teams. You had 21. So you're looking at 37 of the top 100 from five teams combined. And then you're looking at a total of 49 players of the top 100 in the league all on. One of these six, uh, one of these seven teams.
1: I think it goes to show the league is starting to trend towards being top heavy. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when you have teams like the Mets and you have Steve Cohen comes in, he's going to spend until not afraid to spend. Wins a title, it seems. Granted, it didn't work last year. We'll see what happens this upcoming season. The (laughs) Phillies are right up there with highest payroll. So are the Padres, the Yankees, the Braves. All their, I don't know what they're doing down there. They're somehow getting all their guys to sign a contract in like their first or second year for like eight years at like 60 million million yeah Atlanta. whatever
0: they're doing down there is is either really really smart or, or it's gonna blow up in their face absolutely because they're sending all these guys to to basically full like the eight ten eight to ten year extensions um but it, it's interesting to see if you didn't listen in go back and check out we did a uh, Phillies Phillies specific spring training episode uh released that last week it's up on on all the the streaming platforms uh, but Middleton had came out came out to say that he's ready to spend. He's not afraid to make the moves he needs to make. It, if you're spending his money, it's it's to win, and he wants to win more than anything.
1: Yeah, he's certainly putting his money where his mouth is, right? He, he signed Trey Turner this offseason to another $300 million contract oh, yeah. after Bryce Harper a few years ago. But just to put it into perspective, like the Braves, they signed Ronald Acuna a couple years ago, eight years, $100 million. Yeah. So that's vastly underpaid for the production he's given him so far. It's genius on the Braves' part. It is, and it's certainly working for him. They did the same thing with Ozzie, Ozzie Albies, Matt Olson when they brought him in, Sean Murphy in the trade this offseason. But they did just pay two of their younger guys, Michael Harris and Vaughn Grisham, who were both rookies
0: last year, and gave them yeah. similar eight-year deals, they, like the 60 and $70 millions. And Austin Riley's on that list too, right? They gave him a fat contract as well.
1: I think so. Well, I'll double-check that one. But I definitely know Vaughn, and yeah, they gave him, Austin, 10 years, $212 million.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, they basically have locked up their whole young core for the next decade almost
1: and it seems like most of those guys are playing well they do very good job of developing their talent but to hand out eight-year contracts to guys in their first year just seems risky i would i mean we've seen what the phillies did when scott kingery came up oh god they tried to do the same thing six he's actually in the last year of his contract they gave him a six-year 24 million dollar deal before he even played one major league game because he just had an incredible spring training yeah, maybe it turns out to be a very good deal like these Braves deals have worked out to be, but this one backfired on the Phillies and he's been stuck in the minor leagues.
0: Well, at least it's a lot lower risk. I mean, six for six years, $24 million is really not much in yeah. the grand scheme of things. Compared to what they're spe- the Braves are spending on their players. But what the Braves have spent on their players, they've actually, like, those guys have actually produced, uh, whereas Kingery hadn't even had a chance to produce yet. Um, so I want to really touch on real quick the top 10 that the MLB came out with um, starting at number 10, you had Freddie Freeman, Jordan Alvarez at 9, Jose Ramirez at 8, Goldschmidt and Arenado at 7 and 6, uh, Manny Machado at 5, Mookie Betts at 4, with Trout in the third spot, Judge number 2, and Otani at 1. Do you agree with that top 10? Is there anything you would change?
1: To me, Otani's definitely won just because of the value he provides, both pitching and hitting. Oh, yeah. It's hard to duplicate that. There's no reason he shouldn't win MVP every year at this point as long as, as he stays healthy. As long as he's doing what he's doing, yeah. I mean, you have a guy who's throwing like ninety-five plus on the mound, and then can hit moonshot home runs whenever he's up to bat. <laughs> One of the
0: it's sweetest cool. swings in the league, yeah. We're talking like modern day Babe Ruth. Oh yeah, uh, honestly, not even though because Babe Ruth kind of sucked as a pitcher. It was it wasn't until he went full time as a position player in the out, an outfielder that he really took off. He's kind of a crappy pitcher. Okay, I, don't think cool. so. I mean I don't know about crappy. That might be the yeah. wrong term, but. I don't think the, that the league has ever seen anyone like Shohei Otani.
1: No, and I don't know if we ever will again. I mean, I'm sure maybe 20, 30 years down the line, but in modern baseball, nothing's like him. Yeah. I would say Trout at three. Yes, he's been a Hall of Fame player so far in his career, but the list should be more of what have you done for me lately, in yes. my opinion. Yes. He's, being he's put been there for, hurt, unfortunately. Yeah, it's he's being put there
0: based on name.
1: So, I, I mean, I would have Trout more towards, I don't even know if I would have him in the top 10 right now. Granted, the talent is there as a top three player, but since those injuries have just really crept up over the course of his career the past few seasons it's tough for me to say he's the third best player the yeah. other name i wouldn't agree with is jordan alvarez yes he's also a very good players i mean we saw what he did in the world series against the phillies that home run i don't think it's landed yet did he hit off jose alvarado oh God, yeah, in game
0: 6 moonshot
1: i mean that ball is still going <laughs> <sighs> man unfortunate but what are you going to do he just he doesn't have a track record either I think he definitely can be a top-ten player in the league, but he needs more time in to be a top-ten player on a list of...
0: And just to prove that he's not just kind of like a one-hit wonder, short-term sensation kind of deal. Um, I definitely agree with that. But also, I mean, I think this might be a little biased, just seeing as you and I are Phillies fans, but I think a healthy Bryce Harper, there's no reason he shouldn't be in the top ten because he's shown the past few years, especially, I mean, his whole career he's been a really good player. But since he's come to Philly, he's just been a different beast when he's again health issues, but it's not like he's pulling hamstrings, he's breaking bones and stuff and it's it's not things that they're they're not really avoidable. Um uh, but I I think Bryce Harper is a top 10 player in the league. Um in my personal opinion, him and him and Trey Turner, although Turner granted, Turner was ranked at 11 and Harper at 17. So like those are fair rankings for where they're at, especially Trey. Um But I feel like Bryce, what he's brought to the table for the Philadelphia Phillies, how valuable he's been to this team, I think he's a top 10. And I think when he comes back in June, July, whenever he gets healthy, I think he shows just why I I believe he's a top 10 player.
1: Yeah, 100% agree. Maybe, you know, I don't know how much someone like Bryce Harper looks into lists like this that the MLB put out, but... If I see him, you said 17, right? Yeah, he's at 17 if right I now. If I see him the 17th ranked player, knowing who I am as Bryce Harper, that's <laughs> yeah. going to tick me off a little I'm bit Bryce a chip GD on my shoulder.
0: G.D. Harper. I yeah. mean,
1: he he hit 35 home runs his first year in Philly. He hits 35 again in 2021. Unfortunately, you know, 2020, shortened season, so tough to say how many he could have hit there. He had, let's see, 13 home runs in 58 games, so maybe
0: that puts him on pace for the same so type of output. 58 games, you can basically just say multiply that by three. Yeah, 15, you said? Uh, 13. 13? So, yeah, so right thir- 39. So, the same thing, 35 to 40, kind and of in that range.
1: Last year, he only hits, um, let's see, 18 home runs, but he only played 99 games. So, again, kind of right on pace for that mid-30s, yeah. and he bets 309 in 2021. That's his best season with the Phils. Hit 286
0: last year. Just to me, Bryce Harper is a top-10 player. Yeah, he's been incredibly consistent when he is healthy, and he's one of, those, he's one of the few players, and at least for me personally, that – when I see him go up to the plate, I stop what I'm doing and I watch that at bat, and that, that's exactly what happened. We talked about it in our spring training thing, but that that home run in the NLCS, the eighth inning home run, I w- I just remember saying to my wife, like, "Hey, just just watch this, watch this. It's just special. It is. He he is he's special and he's lived up to the hype. I remember seeing him on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was in high school, yeah, I was in high school or something like that. Yeah, and to see that he's panned out the way he has, I mean, the guy's phenomenal. So. Um, Tom, I know we got some really great stories to get into today. So real quick, well, let's hear this word from our sponsors and we will get right back and get into the stories.
1: This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Ruchi Heating and Cooling LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484 484- Eight, four, nine, one,
0: zero, one, five. All right. So we are back and Thomas, you are leading us off today. Uh, What what story do you have on, on deck for us?
1: Sure. So Mickey Mantle, he actually announces his retirement from baseball on March 1st of 1969. Normally I wouldn't just go and review any player's retirement, but I feel like Mickey Mantle was truly a special player. He ends up in the hall of fame. So I just felt like it was an important one to cover today.
0: Yeah. One of the greatest of all time.
1: Now I've, Always known, like Mickey Mantle, very great player. But before doing this research, I didn't really realize how good of a player he was. Sure. So, Mickey, he starts his journey with the New York Yankees and managed to stay and play his whole 18-year career with them. Now, kind of like we were just talking about Bryce Harper, that's definitely a rarity in today's game. Bryce Harper started with the Nationals, comes to the Phillies in free agency. But Tony Gwynn plays his whole 20-year career with the Padres. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that was probably more common back in the day where guys say they're like, ah, I'll just go test free agency. This team wants to offer me $300 million.
0: Sure, I'll go. Yeah, I feel like back in the day there was less, it was less about money being thrown around. There wasn't as much money in the game. So I feel like loyalty went a long way.
1: For sure. Like, why
0: would I want
1: to uproot my whole family? I'm sure travel wasn't as easy then too. Moving everything where today you can find stuff on the internet, buy your house and Let not even have to visit it basically. Move cross country
0: without lifting a finger.
1: Right that's what you have agents for him. I mean, I'm sure there were agents back then too, but very different, very different day and age for sure. So uh, let's see, Mickey, he starts his career in 1951 and quickly establishes himself as one of the league's best players. So he actually um, started growing. He grew up in Oklahoma and baseball wasn't the only sport he played. So football was actually very popular there and unfortunately led to a recurring issue throughout his big league career. So while playing football as a kid, Mickey sustained an injury after being kicked in the shin So the injury was uh, osteomyelitis, I think it's called. Might have botched that, but it's more or less an infection of the bone. And shout out to my NP of a wife. She gave me that insight on this one, so I did not have to look (laughs) it up. So this injury actually ends up plugging Mickey throughout his whole career, and a big reason he lost the speed element to his game at an early age than most players. Interesting. Now, because of his drive to be great and love for the game, it actually pushed him past, past these injuries and eventually into the baseball record books. So, Whitey Ford actually called him a superstar who never acted like one. He was a humble man who was kind and friendly to all of his teammates, even the rawest rookie. He was idolized by all of the other players. So, to get his career started, he only spends two seasons in the minor leagues at ages 17 and 18. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing that at 17 and 18. How about you, Brian? <laughs> no, no, not at all. That's unbelievable. So, he breaks into the big leagues on April 7th, 1951 at just the age of 19 years old. So in his rookie year, he plays 96 games, he hits 267, gets on base at a 349 clip, hits 13 home runs, drives in 65 RBIs, and manages to strike out 74 times, which honestly, as a 19-year-old, doesn't sound like a terrible stat line, even if he only played in 96 games. Not at all. So still, um, all in all, just like a solid rookie season there, even if it is almost a strikeout per game. But with that said, for you advanced metric fans out there, he had a war or wins above replacement of 1.5. So just a little bit better than league average, but still for a 19-year-old, pretty good. Now, unfortunately for Mickey during the six, uh, excuse me, 51 World Series, he suffers a big leg injury that forced him to miss the rest of that World Series. So he's chasing after a fly ball that's hit off the bat of Willie Mays. Running from right field towards the ball, Mickey came up short and realized his outfield partner in center fielder, Joe DiMaggio, was running towards him from the left, and he was the one who was actually going to make the catch. Next thing you know, Mickey is laying flat on the ground. So it turns out his cleat got stuck in the ground and actually got caught on part of the sprinkler system that was under the grass. So Mickey ends up being carried off in a stretcher, much different than what you would see today when a knee injury happens. Typically, you'd get the medical cart and they would get them off the field that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So modern medicine, you know, modern technology plays a, plays a big role. Now, after the game, Mickey, he actually spoke about what happened there. So he said, it was Joe's ball. I was getting out of the way. Maybe I stepped in a hole, but something let go in my knee. I heard a pop. I just don't know what happened. So the injury is actually quite serious and required many surgeries. The injury was a major contributor to why Mantle never reached the high ceiling that was predicted for him, which is amazing considering he ended up being a Hall of Fame player. Now, the reason this happened, um, Mickey was going hard after the ball, and that's because his manager, Casey Stengel, told him to go after any ball he can because of the heel injury that DiMaggio was dealing with at the time. So even as an inexperienced 19-year-old outfielder, and I don't know if you know this, Brian, but Mickey was actually a shortstop originally.
0: I did not know that actually at all. I figured he was just an outfielder.
1: So he was actually transitioning to play outfield and was still tasked to take on all these responsibilities at such an early age. Now, fortunately for Mickey, he was able to come back from the injury and was actually the starting center fielder for the Yankees the following season. In 1952, he hit 311 with 23 home runs, 87 RBIs, and 94 runs scored. He makes the All-Star team for the first time and appeared in 15 more uh, Midsummer Classics. So over the course of the next three seasons, Mickey ends up averaging 28 home runs with a high of 37 in 1955, 90, uh, 98 RBIs and 118 runs per season were his averages. He hits 3.19 on average across those seasons. And then you get fast forward to 1956, it's probably the best year of his career. He ends up hitting 52 home runs, drives in 130 RBIs, that's 353, an on-base percentage of 464 and a slugging percentage of 705. So his WAR for that season was 11.3 which is one of the highest in Major League history, ranking as the 15th best season by a position player ever. (laughs) All right, all right. Now, during this historic year, he manages to win the Triple Crown in baseball. So, Brian, do you know what that means to win the Triple Crown in baseball? Yeah,
0: Triple Crown is you are the league leader in, I want to say it's hits, home runs, and average. Maybe it's not hits, home runs, and average? Yeah, that's my guess. I feel like I should know this. So, it's average, home runs, and RBIs. Rbis, All right. All right.
1: I knew it. I knew it was one of the two. So it turns out, like I said, he won MVP. It's the first time he does it and he ends up repeating the honor and takes home MVP the following year as well. Now you want to talk about joining the right team at the right time. Mickey happens to win seven AL championships and five world series titles over the first eight years in the big leagues.
0: Uh, Rough life.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I would say most guys are happy to play in the majors for eight years. Right. Yet alone make it to seven World Series in those first eight and come away with five rings.
0: Yeah, the Yankees, I mean, the Yankees were just, they've always just been, at least they were different. They were just built different. It was a different time, and they were a, a true dynasty.
1: Yeah, more or less the golden era for them at that point. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So moving ahead here from 1957 to 1961, Mickey continues to be one of the best players in the game. Now over this time frame, he builds on his legacy by having great season after great year and continues to play in almost every game. So in 1961, he hits 54 home runs, which is the most of his career in a single season and drove in 128 RBIs that year too. Now 1957 is the best year as far as average goes for him. He hits 365 and gets on base at a rate of uh, 512. So 512 on base percentage that season.
0: Ridiculous. Just ridiculous. You don't see that. You don't see that often. No, that's why he's a Hall of Fame player, right? Oh, yeah. so One, right. of, one of many reasons.
1: In the same season, he manages to walk 146 times and only gets struck out on 75 of his at-bats. Now, 1962, it's the first season since his rookie year where Mickey starts to get plagued by injuries. He ends up missing 40 games throughout the course of this year, but still manages to win AL MVP. He hits 321, crushed 30 homers, and drives in 89 RBIs. So a lot of solo shots there. And that year, he actually leads the AL with an on-base percentage of 486 and a 605 slugging percentage. So this season, Mickey and the Yankees got to their third straight World Series and captioned their second title in a row. Now at this point, this is where Mickey's career starts to trend downward, unfortunately for him. He only plays in 65 games in 1963 due to injuries, and his batting average over the following five seasons starts at 303 in 1964, drops to 255 in 1965, comes back up in 66 to 288 before trending back down to a measly 245 and 237 at that point.
0: It's amazing that you say that, though, because at the time, those are, like, not great batting averages, but nowadays, that's, like, very common in what you see in the league, which I think may change with the shift being uh, limited this year, but that's a whole different topic. Yeah,
1: and something we can certainly touch on. <laughs> um, so, Mickey's career batting average, he was well above three hundred going into these seasons, but after that two forty five and two thirty seven season, he's now sitting at two ninety eight. His career, yeah, his career average of 298. Yep, sitting, sitting at 298. So headed into the spring training of 1969, it was believed around baseball that Mickey was still going to play. However, upon his arrival, he had other ideas. During a press conference on March 1st of 1969, Mickey made the following statement. I'm not going to play baseball anymore. That's all I know. I can't play anymore. I don't hit the ball when I need to. I can't steal when I need to. I can't score from second when I need to. So when you're used to greatness and realize you don't have anymore, that's a quality a lot of these guys don't have. Most guys play until it's almost too late. He went out on top. Or as close up as he could be. Right. So Mickey probably hung them up right at the right time. Now you can see someone like Tom Brady who's probably played for a couple seasons too long.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to say it taints the legacy, but like it definitely like you could have ended it better. If I was Tom Brady, I would have
1: went to Tampa Bay, proved I could have won without Bill Belichick, won that Super Bowl, and retired. It day. Yeah, got he said he there. played two
0: more seasons. Yeah, it. destroyed his marriage. Yeah, and, I mean, granted, I'm sure there was a lot more going on there, but hey, whatever. Yeah, go, go out on top instead of with a whimper, which is kind of what I feel like he did this time. So for Mickey, all of his numbers they're starting to drop, not just his average,
1: and the larger-than-life player was starting to seem like he was more just like a, a mere mortal human. So Mickey was also quoted to say. I will never want to embarrass myself on the field or hurt the club in any way or give the fans anything less than they are entitled to expect from me. Anyhow, there are a lot of young fellows coming into their own. It's a young ball club with a lot of promise, and I wish I were 20 years old again and a part of the team. So unfortunately, this is more like the end of an era in baseball, especially for the Yankees, whom many have considered this to be their golden age. As Robert Marcus of the Chicago Tribune pointed out, for the first time in nearly fifty years, there is no Yankee superstar. It all started with Babe Ruth, and then Babe was joined by Lou Gehrig. While Lou was there, along came Joe DiMaggio, and Joe's final season in the majors, Mickey Mantle came along, and so the chain was unbroken until Saturday when Mantle hung him up.
0: Which is fascinating. I mean, they do. You look back in the the annals of of baseball history, and there's there was especially through the er, earliest years in the first you know fifty years or so, there was huge names in Yankees baseball and even you don't consider, consider them true superstars I mean the Yogi Berra's and Thurman Munson's and Roger Maris Mar- oh yeah Roger Maris you know the and his 61 home runs I mean it's just like the Yankees had I, I grew up a Yankees fan I grew up in you know up in New York granted not in New York City but I grew up a Yankees fan and they you that's know, a shame I know right I, I listen it is what it is uh but guys like mickey mantle and like that I, the history of the game i feel like i fell in love with it because of learning about guys like this
1: yeah and kind of like i was touched on earlier like i didn't know this much about mickey mantle i always knew he was a great player hall of famer but to really do the research on mickey and figure out what his career was like and the numbers he was putting up oh yeah if he was in today's game it would be he
0: would be he'd, be the, he'd he might be, be number better. one on that list. He right. might be number one on that list that we just talked about earlier.
1: For sure, with all those numbers he was putting up. And it's a shame he didn't get to bat 300 for his career. I feel like that's such a,
0: a big, you're so close to
1: big thing for players. You know, that's sure. their,
0: maybe their career goal. Well, I think it's funny because early in the story, you said something about he never reached his full potential. But the man played. Uh, so I'm seeing here. He was a 20-time All-Star, hit 298 with 2,400 hits, 536 home runs, and 1,500 RBIs. So the fact that because due to injury and actually a pretty well-publicized battle with alcoholism, um, he didn't achieve his full potential. So like there, the fact that there was more that he could have done on top of his already ridiculous list of accomplishments is just, I mean, unreal. Uh, first, time, first belt Hall of Famer back in 1974, 88% of the vote. I mean, the man was, I mean, he's a legend, an absolute legend. You know, I didn't know all this. So five years later,
1: uh, like you just said, 1974, he's inducted into the Hall of Fame, rightfully so. His career, career numbers here, I think he touched on someone, but I'll just recap it. Five, yeah. 536 home runs, uh, 1,676 runs scored, 1,509 RBIs. He has 1,733 walks and finishes with a 298 batting average. So he won three MVPs, um... Multiple-time All-Star, like we just mentioned. He ends up playing in 12 World Series with the Yankees and manages to win seven of them. (laughs) Unbelievable. So here's some World Series stats for him. For the 12 World Series he played in, he hits 18 home runs, scores 42 runs, drove in 40 RBIs, had 125 total bases, and then drew 43 walks. Talk about an absolute legend.
0: And Yeah, and just a clutch performer, too. Like To be able to do that under the... Most the highest pressure situation in in your field in your career uh, to get out there and do that is just unbelievable. And he really, um, I mean, he was just he was just different. I mean, a uh, few other things he was when he retired, he was actually the most successful base stealer of all time in terms of in terms of percentage, not percentage, the total sure. number of bases, but percentage. He also is the career leader, tied with a Philadelphia Philly, uh, uh, in walk off home runs with thirteen. Who was who he tied with? Walk-off home runs. Phillies. Well, I guess... he The guy did not play with the Phillies for his whole career. He did definitely make a prominent stop here. We watched him. I was thinking Jim Tomey. You're right. Yeah, I probably didn't need to give you as many clues because I feel like you would have pulled that on anyway. I was
1: leaning towards Mike Schmidt originally, but then once you said he made a short stop here, that's when I flipped to Tomey.
0: Yeah, Jim Tomey. I, I remember watching it, that big towering lefty that could, so could drop dropping moonshots.
1: Now, when... As great as it was to have Jim Tomey be the marquee guy to more or less open up Citizens Bank Park back in the day, yeah. It probably wasn't the best signing by the Phillies. It blocked Ryan Howard for a couple extra years where Ryan Howard I believe didn't make his MLB debut till 26, which is very late for, you know, yeah. someone
0: of his stature and how good he was. But at the same time though, like it's not like Tomey came here and wasn't good. No, Tomey yeah, was very good, very good much. Here for Philly. But, but I get what you're saying cuz Howard Came on, yeah, like you said, at around twenty six. I think he, that makes sense, and then but that limited his his best years because of correct. That. And he was just tearing up minor league baseball. And
1: I don't think Ryan Howard's ever going to get on the baseball ballot to be no. elected to the Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, but no, if never. he has
0: those two or three extra years, maybe he's up
1: for consideration.
0: I think so. Oh, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of really phenomenal players out there that honestly just just they did had a great career. They they did great things, but it doesn't mean you're a hall of famer. Like I feel like the hall of famer is should be reserved for the best of the best. And that you don't want to see it get watered down too much. Not saying that not at all saying that Ryan Howard would be watering it down, but at the same time, you don't want the hall of very good. There's probably a lot of yes, exactly. There's probably better players out there, so like uh, Barry Bonds. Uh, dude, <laughs> I will I will die on that hill. Barry Bonds is the greatest baseball player of all time. Um, yeah, we'll spend the next half hour talking about that. So <laughs> yeah, forget my story. We won't go into that one. All right. So, uh, Tom, you got anything else to add about Mickey Mantle? Any, anything else you want to add there? No,
1: yeah, I mean, obviously just an all-around great player. Um, not much more to say sure. than that.
0: Sure. And, and the only reason I ask you that is because I I think I also have a pretty awesome story with a ton of great info. I did want to mention real quick. Did you know he was there. a switch? Handed, uh, switch I did not.
1: Yeah, he batted righty and lefty.
0: That's just fascinating. I tried to like teach myself to do that growing up, and I got I turned into a half decent contact hitter left handed, but yeah, same here. Yeah, just uh, like a slap hitter. I wasn't yeah, exactly. elevating the ball. No, nope, exactly, just to slap th- slap it through, uh, get it out, get moving, and I'm not fast enough to just be a slap hitter. So no, nah, that wasn't my <laughs> so, uh, so I went back to re- either. I went back to just righty and dropping tried to hit bombs. it as far as I could. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. All right, so speaking of uh, dropping bombs. My story today, uh, March 2nd, 1962, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain set the single-game scoring record for the NBA by scoring 100 points for the Philadelphia Warriors in a 169-147 win over the New York Knicks. Did he, though? A lot of people think that's fake. Did you know that? So I'm not surprised because there is no video evidence, um, and there's very little even radio evidence because this was actually a very under-attended game, um, this was at a time when the NBA wasn't really the power, not even close to the powerhouse it is now. College basketball was actually what people paid attention to. The NBA P- was still trying to get get the traction going. And I'll actually dive into that here um, as we get into the story. Um, so Wilt's 100 points is widely considered to be the greatest record in sports history. I honestly don't know why, because all you got to do is feed somebody the ball and they can try to push it. But hey, we'll get, we'll get into it. Granted, it's at the pro level, so it's pretty cool. Um, so he scored 100 points in that game. And in that game, he actually set five other league records, including the most free throws made, which is pretty notable for him because he was not a good free throw. I shoot. was like, he was a very poor free throw Yeah, shooter. so it just shows how often he got to the line. Um, and actually, the both teams broke the record for most combined points in a game, which actually, I believe, may have just been eclipsed this past week. Um, the Kings and Clippers had a ridiculous game. He went to double overtime, right? Yes. Um, okay, they didn't get there, but they did have 200... And forty nine points, so yeah, one
1: seventy six to one seventy five.
0: Yeah, so two hundred forty nine points. So not even close. Three hundred sixteen games is just un- unreal. Uh, so to get into this this game that he had, it's not just that he had one ridiculous game. Wilt Chamberlain was having arguably the greatest season of all time. That season, he was averaging a single season record of fifty point. He averaged a single season record of fifty point four points per game, and he broke the NBA single game scoring record earlier in the season. In December, with uh, there was the record was seventy one. He scored seventy eight points. The crazy thing is, he was only this was only his third year in the league. Uh, that he, I did not know. Yeah, so he had already set scoring records, uh, single season scoring records in his first two seasons, um, having averaged, I believe, I have it here, it was thirty four and thirty eight points per game. I'll get, I'll, I'll get to that fact. But yeah, so he had already been setting scoring records, but then all of a sudden he was doing this, um, and so during the his hundred point game. During the fourth quarter of that game, the Knicks actually be, began fouling other players to keep the ball away from Wilt. And they also became deliberate on offense, holding the ball. This is before the shot clock, before the three-pointer. There was a, It was a very different game of basketball than we know now. So they were holding the ball to reduce the amount of times he would get to touch the ball because he was dominating them so heavily. It's like when you play high school ball and you go to like the four corners and just like throw the ball around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so actually the, the Philadelphia Warriors actually ended up uh, committing fouls of their own to get themselves the ball back and get the ball to Wilt. Um, so what, like you said, this game is disputed as if this actually did this truly happen because it was not televised and no, no video footage of the game has ever been recovered. There are only audio audio recordings of just the fourth quarter of the game. Um, the NBA was not yet recognized as being a major sports league and they actually struggled to compete with college basketball. So they were playing, like I said, Hershey PA. The attendance at the game was approximately half of the stadium's capacity with only 4,124 people in attendance And not a single member of the New York City press was in attendance at the game. So, like, nobody really cared that this game was happening.
1: Which is shocking for 1960s. It's not like television wasn't around or anything. It's not the 1920s where it's before
0: that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, it's very fascinating to me that I I I, it made sense when I was reading through this because I've never seen any highlights of it. You just hear about it. There's the famous picture of him with the piece of paper with the 100 on it. You just assume it happened. So Wilt Chamberlain obviously is a fascinating character. Seven foot one, two hundred sixty pound center. Uh, he was in his third season in the NBA, and the previous two seasons he had set the uh, all time single season scoring record. His rookie season he averaged thirty seven point six points per game. Then he won uh, one up that in his second season with thirty eight point four points per game. Um, so in his third season, Frank McGuire, the Warriors' new coach, started the season vowing to get the ball to Chamberlain at least two thirds of the time. Uh, Why not? I mean. Good luck
1: stopping a seven foot
0: one freak. Yeah, because he was in, he, he was like seven foot one and athletic as all all can be. Um, so Sports Illustrated wrote that McGuire's eventual effect may be to measurably change the character of professional basketball from a brawling, hustling, cigar in the face and eye on the till game that it had been for decades to the major league sport which it long deserved to be. He uh, McGuire was determined to play Chamberlain every minute of every game. Uh, the center only missed eight minutes and 33 seconds of that season uh, due to getting tech, uh, technical fouls and getting kicked out of the game. So um, in three games earlier that week, he scored 67 65 and 61 points respectively, giving him an already record 15 times scoring 60 or more points in his career. He was closing in on 4,000 points for the season, needing 237 more. No other player had ever scored 3000 points in a season at that point. So, uh, mind boggling. Yeah. Unbelievable. December 8th of 1961 in a triple OT game versus the Lakers. He set a new NBA record by scoring 78 points, uh, breaking the record of 71 previously set by Elgin Baylor. Uh, Chuck, Chick Hearn, the legendary Lakers broadcaster often told the story that after the game, he asked Baylor, if it bothered him that Chamberlain had an extra 15 minutes to break the record. And, uh, I think just because he played every minute or every game. And according to Chick Hearn, Baylor said he wasn't concerned because someday that guy's going to score 100. Man, look at that. A little foreshadowing. Guess, right? Uh, and then NBA legend, uh, 11-time champion Bill Russell, predicted that Chamberlain has the size, strength, and stamina to score 100-some night. Uh, it's reported that in a high school game in 1955 at Overbrook High School here in Philadelphia, uh, Chamberlain had scored 90 points in a 123-21 victory. 123-21. They won by 102 points uh, <laughs> well, I guess when you scored 90
1: points yourself, it makes sense. He went by right. 102.
0: So the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Inquirer wrote that Chamberlain might have hit 100 if he had played the entire 32 minutes. So before Chamberlain got into the league, the most dominant big man in the NBA was six foot ten George Mikan. If you played basketball at all, you did the mic. And you were a big man. I know I was. If you hooped at all, you did the Mikan drill. Yeah, we're going under the back Under board. the basket. Right-hand layup. Yep. Left-hand layup. Right-hand layup. Just catching layup. each time it comes up, out through the hoop. Yes, sir. And go right back up with it. So, uh, Miken was so dominant that in November of 1950, the Fort Wayne Pistons held the ball for minutes at a time without shooting to limit the impact of George Mikan. Uh The Pistons actually only attempted 13 shots in that game and won 19 to 18. Wow, talk about high scoring! Um, God, can you imagine sitting through that? No, <laughs> uh, it just sounds horrible. So, there was a number of stars um, in the game at the time, and the NBA president said that we need to start we need to be scoring like this is not acceptable so actually i was wrong about the the shot clock so in the 50 51 season teams averaged just above 80 points per game so then by 1954 uh, the nba actually that's when they introduced the 24 second shot clock smart yeah so when they did that league scoring and attendance increased which makes sense because now it's gonna be a more high energy game every so often you hear a story from out of like high school sports where a team wins four to two because they play somewhere where there's not a shot clock or there's other stuff going on um, so the shot clock is definitely a necessity. So in fifty fifty one, teams are a- averaging just around 80 points a game. 10 years later, by sixty one sixty two, teams were averaging 119 points per game. It was more similar to what we're seeing in the NBA these days. Um, Chamberlain that season was one of 37 black players in the league. The NBA just started integrating the league uh, in 1950. And with the emergence of black players in the NBA, the game was stylistically being played faster, being played above the rim. Just, it was a more athletic game all around. Uh, many of the league's great players were black, and the black players believed that they were limited by a league quota of only allowing four black players per team. Never knew that. That's <laughs> uh, well, wow. welcome to nineteen fifties nineteen fifties U.S. Tom. Yeah, I guess that shouldn't surprise us. No, I know. Was going on I actually did not really did not know that that was a thing until I, I got here. So um, critics started suggesting that basketball was becoming uninteresting because the taller players were dominating because of the style of play at, at the time. Like like I said, there was no three point shot um and the thing though is that even with the new play the black players running the league nobody was like will chamberlain uh will chamberlain was a freak who will come and get according to um joe rucklick who was a teammate of him at the time um uh, people that chamberlain was just like a freak one of a kind player uh there will never be they, he says they will never there will never be a black guy doing this again there will never be anybody doing that
1: again Yeah, it doesn't matter
0: yeah who it is racist ass time in the u.s I'm not going to take that. I'll take that What is what it is. Chamberlain was named, nicknamed Dipper, because he was uh, revolutionized the sport with his dunks. Dunking was not really a thing in the league, but if you ever watch old clips of basketball, you'll see why. <laughs> it was looks very boring. Um, so the basketball traditionalists at the time considered dunking to be poor sportsmanship, and Chamberlain really changed that. And he, but the thing with Chamberlain is he wanted to be better than just being known for being tall. He wanted to be able to get out there and score. So going into this game, there was very little advanced excitement about the pending uh, Warriors Knicks games that Friday. Only five games remained in the regular season. The Warriors were 46-29, and 29, comfortably in second place, but they were 11 games behind the Celtics, so there was no chance of them catching up. And the Celt- Knicks were in, in last place, which is not a surprise. The Knicks suck. Uh, <laughs> Chamberlain had spent the night before the game in New York City partying all night, and he was with a female companion. I mean, he's very well-known for his um i don't know what's more impressive his numbers on the court or off the court yeah his 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 personal life was is a story all in itself um so he ended up on a train <laughs> i dropped her off at 6 a.m no sleep and hung over he boarded a train to philly at 8 a.m met several friends at the philly uh friends at the philly train station had lunch with them and actually almost missed the team bus to hershey uh, um so everyone was just kind of uh End of the season. Nobody was all that excited about the game. Let's just
1: wrap it up and get to the ex- offseason.
0: Exactly. So, Philly um, Warriors, Warriors player York Larice, said that the biggest thrill of my life was to see Wilt do what he did. There was nothing exciting about the Knicks playing the Warriors in Hershey, PA. Chocolate was more exciting because, you know, obviously Hershey chocolate. So, the game was played at Hershey Sports Arena, an old drafty gym originally built for ice hockey. The league occasionally played games in remote towns to attract new fans. And this was the third Warriors home game the season in Hershey which is about 85 miles from Philadelphia um, it was not a great place uh, it sounds like the stadium sucked the town of the town of obviously Hershey was all was and is still known for their chocolate um, the smell of chocolate permeated everything at the time and it was practically impossible to stay indoors people felt sick um, just due to the smell of everything and the crappy setting yeah, hey, but chocolate smells so good. What's wrong with that? I think it probably just got overwhelming after a certain point. So yeah, I'm sure if you're not used to it. If you go to Hershey nowadays, it does not smell like chocolate anymore, unfortunately, unless you're in Hershey chocolate world, which is if you if you ever stop through Hershey, Hershey Park is worth a visit.
1: For sure. I mean, they have great things going on all the time. doesn't matter if it's spring, summer, fall, and winter. If, yeah, if you, you like it, if you year. like a good
0: amusement park, they have great rides. A lot of good roller coasters. Uh, but I digress. So we're on a cold, rainy Friday night, March 2nd, 1954, I think I said, 19, 1962. Um, real cold night, gross. Nobody's all that excited. Um, 4,124 spectators paid to see the game, primarily because they wanted to see the Philadelphia Eagles play an exhibition basketball game against the Baltimore Colts before the NBA game started. The arena's capacity was over 8,000, um, and the Warriors owner at the time, Eddie Gottlieb, was infamous for exaggerating attendance numbers. Warriors' attendance at the time had dropped from 7,000 and, Wilt's it's rookie season to less than 5,000 in his third season, which is crazy because you had the greatest player in the league on the team. You'd think they'd be selling out.
1: Yeah, definitely surprising. Like, if anything, it should be going up, not trending backwards.
0: So, the thing is, college basketball was the dominant sport at the time. Everyone loved college basketball. The NBA was only in its 16th season at the time. It was not yet considered a major sports league, and it was less established than college basketball. The league was hardly national uh, with only one team, the Lakers being west of St. Louis, and that was after they moved from Minneapolis to L.A.
1: And it makes sense because in Philly you have the what used to be known as the Big Five and oh, yeah. St. Joe's, Temple, Lasall, oh, yeah. Villanova, and how and Penn. Don't want to forget them. I've played down at the Palestra a few times oh, that's like, awesome. growing up playing basketball locally, so it was a great experience, but it makes sense as to why the Warriors weren't as popular because you had, like you said, college basketball. And it was those, huge. It was huge, and those five teams really dominated the that time
0: yeah And at the time the nba was receiving very low television ratings and the game was not at all televised the national broadcasting company nbc uh considered not even renewing the league's television contract no media of the press no members of the new york press were there as they were in florida covering spring training for the yankees and the the mets who were brand new at the time um so with very few of the media present the warriors publicist was tasked with um being like the one person and there was only two photographers at the game, which I think is why you really only see that one picture of Wilt from the locker room after world words. So going into the game. The next were shorthanded with their starting center out with an illness, which obviously if you're missing your starting center, guarding Wilt Chamberlain is going to be a real pain of a task. Good luck. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he was sick. Um, earlier in the season, they did play against each other. Uh, so it was reported that, that Phil Jordan, the starting center was out with the flu, but it was widely suspected that he was just massively hung over. Um, no surprise totally
1: totally different game you didn't have the access to the medical stuff to get yourself back right yeah and most
0: people then were probably not treating their body like the athletes do today not nearly as professional and and put together as what it is now um so early in the season when the knicks and warriors had played um phil jordan was in the game and wilt scored 33 points or he scored 33 points and wilt scored 34 so like he actually was pretty decent at I mean thirty four is not locking somebody down but when you average fifty points a game I'm gonna say you locked him down at thirty four. You had a good night on defense. Exactly. So instead the Knicks started six foot ten, two hundred twenty pounds, second year player Daryl Imhoff. Uh, he was a very strong defensive player for the Cal Golden Bears and, and led the Cal Golden Bears to the NCAA championship in nineteen fifty nine. Also won the gold medal with the U S. in the sixty Summer Olympics. Uh, New York also had a six foot six foot nine. 210 pound backup center cleveland buckner who's a better shooter than a defender and chamberlain overpowered him for an nba record 28 points in one quarter two days earlier so they were looking a little shorthanded but imhoff gave them a decent chance because he was known for playing defense someone's got to stand in front of him i guess right yeah yeah right somebody's got to someone's got to be out there as long as it's not me So getting into the game, uh, according to McGuire, the Warriors coach, the game did not start with any plan to get Chamberlain to score that many points. Um, But after a few minutes, the Warriors were up nineteen to three, and and Wilt already had thirteen points, made his first five shots. By the end of the first quarter, the Knicks were down sixteen, or no, Knicks were down yeah sixteen, and Wilt had already scored twenty three points, making all nine nine of his free throws. And free throws were the worst part of his game. He was actually making just over 50% of his free throws. Sounds like Shaq. So, yeah, right. So the fact that he was nine for nine is pretty wild. So he actually started shooting free throws underhanded that season per uh, based on the coach's request or suggestion. Uh, at that point, Chamberlain was thinking more about free, th- uh, free throw shooting record than scoring a lot of points. The NBA record at the time was 24 free throws made in a game. Uh, Imhoff was soon benched because of foul trouble. And after one foul, he snapped at the referee. Well, why don't you guys? Why don't you just give the guy a hundred now? and I'll we'll go home.
1: Yeah, it would have been easy enough, right?
0: Right. Uh, neither referee had been a lead official before, and Imhoff privately wished a stronger lead was working the game, which I I could see. I mean, like if you're getting fouls called that often, I played basketball. Like there's a there's a there's a limit. I feel like.
1: Yeah, there could be a lot of ticky tack stuff called. Yeah, especially so by, for
0: newer guys. Right. Exactly. So by halftime, the Warriors had lost some of their lead, but we're still up seventy nine to sixty eight at the half. Wilt had Wilt had scored 41 at this point. And it's probably
1: important that yeah. the game got close, because if not, maybe Wilt doesn't yep. play as many minutes or then focused on getting him the ball.
0: Well, so yeah, the Warriors were not all that excited about it because it was nothing new to them. Wilt had scored 60 or more points 15 times before that. So he, as Wilt actually himself said, I often came into the locker room with 30 or 35 points before. So like 41 was not really a big deal. Um, during halftime, though, Warriors player Guy Rogers said, well, let's just get the ball to him Let's see how many he can get. So at that point, that's where that's where this started. This is where it turned on. It's like Kobe's retirement game. Say, so, all right, give the man the ball. Just keep putting it up, Kobe. Yeah. So this uh, this tactic proved to be unstoppable. He quickly passed fifty points, uh, causing the arena uh, announcer Dave Zinkoff to fire up the previously quiet crowd. Chamberlain kept his cool despite being perpetually triple and quadruple teamed by the Knicks, who did not shy from hard fouls to distract him. Uh, the coach Maguire, was irate and demanded that the referees call more fouls, but Chamberlain just—they couldn't stop him. He scored another 28 points to lift the Warriors. 28 points in the third to lift the Warriors to a 125-106 lead by the end of the third. So he at that point he was at 69 points, nice, nine nice. shy of the, <laughs> nine shy of his previous scoring record. So he had, his best was 78 at the time. At that point, the next third center Dave Bud, uh, who was in because of the foul trouble, Imhoff. He later stated that trying to, to resist against Chamberlain was just not going to work. said, you couldn't play Chamberlain conventionally because he was so big. The only thing you could attempt to do is either front him, and in that case, they just lob it over you, or beat him down the floor and set up where he wanted to get and force him out a couple of extra steps. Dude weighed like three 300 pounds or 270, uh, 270, 300 pounds. So again, moving him around was not easy. Um, but at that point, Wilt realized now that he could break his own, at least his own. So he had a 73-point scoring record for a regulation game. His 78 points was set in triple overtime. So at this point, um, Dave Zinkoff, the PA announcer, began announcing Wilt's point total after each of his baskets. With 10 minutes left in the game, Warriors forward Tom Eshree sensed that the, the team concept breaking down. The offense had shifted to getting Chamberlain the ball and then stopping and watching, just letting him do what he wanted to do instead of cutting and moving um, and trying to get open. Wilt needed 25 points with eight minutes remaining to reach 100, a rate equivalent to scoring 150 points a game, if he were to do it over a full game. He scored his 79th point with 751 left, breaking his own record and sending the crowd into a frenzy. The spectators and attendants screamed, give it to Wilt, give it to Wilt. After he reached 80, the crowd was yelling for 100. They were going nuts. Chamberlain thought, man, these people are tough. I'm tired. I've got 80 points and no one has ever scored 80 the warriors continue to give him the ball and uh l addles a warriors teammate later explained that we wanted wilt, that we wanted Wilt to get the record because we liked him addles himself led by example passing up on an easy layup so that wilt could score points 88 and 89 5 minutes with 5 minutes left in the game
1: Dang, you should have got like 110 then.
0: Right, right. These selfish guys not passing the ball anymore or well, more. I mean, there's five minutes left in the <laughs> game. In 89. <laughs> yeah, one ten. Yeah, Scored another 20 points in less nine minutes. Uh, so with six minutes remaining, the Knicks began intentionally following any Warrior except Wilt to just keep the ball out of his hands. New York also began moving the ball slowly and using as much of the shot clock as possible to leave fewer opportunities for Chamberlain to score. Effectively, they played the opposite of what a normal team would do as they as they faced a deficit. They weren't trying to win the game. They were just trying to. They willingly were giving up easy points to other players instead of allowing Wilt to score. So it got to the point, though, that the Warriors were just lobbing the ball in from the sideline across the floor directly to Wilt, who would then just do whatever he wanted to score. Uh, Chamberlain was the only Warrior to make a field goal in almost four minutes before one, tried to make made a jump shot with 4.15 left in the game. Philly quickly began fouling New York with around four minutes left, uh, reciprocating their intentional foul strategy to get the ball back for Wilt. So the intention was to foul the Knicks, get the ball back for free throws, and give Chamberlain the ball. Uh, so then each team spent the last minutes of the game fouling each other. The Warriors ended with 25 fouls, and the Knicks with 32, and both uh and lost Imhoff with six fouls. So with two twelve left, Chamberlain was at ninety-four points. He scored on a fadeaway for his ninety-sixth. His next basket came at one nineteen with one nineteen left off a lob pack from York Larice for a powerful dunk that was rare for Chamberlain. Apparently he just he dunked, but they weren't throwing him down like he did for this um gary Ann pomerantz wrote in his book wilt 1962 the night of 100 points um that chamberlain's usual dipper dunk was a considerably less emphatic basket stuff like a rock that barely ripples the pond
1: yeah you probably don't want to break the rim
0: his yeah yeah exactly but this one was this one that was funny um so with less than a minute left in the game chamberlain set up in the post um rucklick passed to rogers who then passed to the chamberlain close to the basket but he missed the shot Ted Luck and Bill rebounded pass passed it right back to Chamberlain, who missed again. Luck and Bill again with a rebound, and this time passed to Rucklick, who was shooting an easy layup, instead allowed to high pass to Chamberlain, which, honestly, these days might probably be an oop, but they weren't really doing that at the time. That was uh, developed by uh, Coffee Black of the Flint Tropics. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Jackie Moon. <laughs> Jackie Moon and, and Coffee Black. With 46 seconds left, Chamberlain got free from the five Knicks. Uh, he jumped uh, high, put the ball into the basket, and that was it. He hit that hundred that 100 mark. Eyewitness accounts of the historic basket differ as to whether Chamberlain really laid the ball in or actually stuffed the ball through the hoop for an alley oop. So that is there is some mythology to this. So a little, a little, it's a little vague as to what actually happened here. In any event, people went nuts. Uh, some of the fans stormed the floor, wanting to touch the, the hero. Rockland immediately ran to the scorer's table to assure that he was officially credited with the assist. Man, man's got to get his stats and got to get those counting stats.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, that could be a difference between getting in the Hall of Fame or not. That one assist
0: yep <laughs> yeah exactly so for years the belief was that the final 46 seconds of the game were not played after chamberlain scored his hundredth point due to the crazy celebration on the court chamberlain himself was quoted as having made the cl- that claim actually so that started with wilt however recordings from the wcau radio broadcast including uh, announcer bill campbell resuming his play-by-play after the hundredth point so we know that it did continue on
1: I'll say would that make it official then? Or yeah, I guess that yeah, a little dicey, huh? I don't know.
0: Well, so the copy of the radio broadcast was actually only uncovered in nineteen eighty-eight, so twenty-four years after this game was played. Uh the original game tape had been recorded over by one of its engineers, which was actually a standard practice in the day. However, a random Philadelphian had recorded with a dictaphone part of Campbell's coverage in the fourth quarter, but only the Warriors' possessions. Uh in 1992 two years later, a real real to real tape of Campbell's entire fourth quarter call surfaced. Um And then a college student at the University of Massachusetts, Jim Trillis, had recorded a 3M rebroadcast of the fourth quarter of the game. Um, Over the years, Harvey Pollock, who at the time was in charge of publicity and stats for the Warriors, has given conflicting statements on the question of whether or not that last 46 seconds played. He was twice quoted as saying that the game ended with 46 seconds remaining, but then in 2002, um, was quoted as saying that the last 46 seconds was played and that Chamberlain just stood in the middle circle waiting for the game to be over. And not wanting to touch the ball. He said 100 sounded a lot better than 102, which is pretty funny to me. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, so uh, the Warriors going to win the game. The radio postgame show reported the Knicks, or the Warriors winning 169 to 150. However, the official scores report was 169 to 147, um, a discrepancy that's really never been explained. Wilt made 36 of 63 field goals that night, as well as 28 of 32 free throws. Um, twenty to thirty-two is crazy for a man that barely shot fifty percent for his career.
1: That's yeah, what seventy-five percent, right? Yeah, a more than
0: that. It's way Maybe more than that. that I said way more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so two other games in Hershey, he just seemed to shoot the free throws really well in Hershey. In two other games there, he's an average of seventy-one percent. Um, the basket rims at the arena were age, flimsy and forgiving, so the balls would bounce off of typical. Where balls that would bounce off of typical rims were falling in that probably shouldn't have for him. Um. So sounds like the perfect storm yeah it was just a perfect perfect combination of all good things going right for him he said nba records that night, day for field goals attempted was 63 field goals made with 36 free throws made at 28 most points in a quarter at 31 and most points in a half with 59 he averaged 73 points in four games that week exceeding 60 points in all of them uh, one of his teammates finished with a game high 20 assists and later said it was the easiest game ever for me to get assists all i had to do was pass it to wilt um and then one of his teammates, uh, I don't have his first name, but his last name was Adels. He was a defensive specialist who rarely scored. That game he went eight for eight from the field and hit his one free throw. And he later lamented that in the game where I literally couldn't miss, Wilt had to go out and score 100. Yeah, so Tough luck there. <laughs> right. So the Warriors and Knicks combined for a record 316 points. Uh, Philly fell short of the Boston Celtics' then record of 173 points in a game but it was not uncommon for late season games in the NBA to feature little defense. And honestly, now they still don't either. Um, Celtics guard, Bob Cousy and a uh, hall of Famer, in his own rate. said that the level of play in the NBA decreased as the season progressed as defenses were out of gas at the end of the game. So that's really Wilt Chamberlain's hundred point game. Uh, the following night, Chamberlain did get permission to travel back to New York with three Knicks players. According to, uh, journalist Chamberlain drifted in and out of sleep and got a kick over hearing the Knicks players talk about the SOB who scored a hundred points on us. On March 4th, the Warriors played the Knicks again in Madison Square Garden. And Amahoff got a standing ovation that night for holding Wilt Chamberlain to 58 points.
1: Wow, so, imagine getting a standing O for limiting someone to 58 right? points. Right,
0: so that's just the story of the greatest game, the greatest single game performance in NBA history. The man himself, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. It's just fascinating. I knew about the game, but until we, I started record, or researching for this episode, I didn't know any of the details behind it. And it was just so funny to listen to and it makes sense that they had to force feed him the ball to get him where he needed to be. Well, you talked
1: about how great of an athlete he was and that's obviously a reason he was able to score 100 points that night. Oh yeah. But did you real? did you know how like good of a uh, track? I oh, was so he was a uh, uh, high jumper, right? Yeah, he jumped his best was 6 feet 6 inches. He could jump over us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're tall guys. He could jump over us. Yeah, and he Jeez.
1: So he also ran the uh 440 yards in 49 seconds. 880 yards in a minute, 58 seconds and put the shot 53, four inches for shot put and then long jump 22 feet.
0: I'd be very curious. Uh, it'd be fascinating. There's a way that we could see all these guys face each other, like over the ages. Excuse was me. Well, wow, that was crazy. Uh, it'd be fascinating to me to see a guy like him in today's NBA. Like we do have guys like Giannis who I would say Giannis specifically who are tall and they could do more than just, Be big men. But I would love to see just based on hearing the stories of his athleticism and his prowess and what he could do, what Will Chamberlain could have done in today's environment with the specialized training and the focus and stuff. He was doing that back then in a day when, granted, the average NBA player probably looked like you or me, and there were some tall guys on the, <laughs> you know, tall guys in the league.
1: Yeah, and you just get the random seven foot one guy coming in to play. Yeah,
0: coming in to dominate. But either way, I mean, what he did was fascinating, and has, nobody's even come close to anything that any of his records. And I don't, I'm not sure anyone ever will. Yeah, that's
1: the one record. I think him, Wayne Gretzky, his point total. I don't think that's ever broken. I don't and, think uh, Kel Ripken. No, say so Cal Ripken's streak
0: will ever be broken. Game streak. Kobe tried to get close, but I mean, 81. That was a. I remember watching that game. That was phenomenal.
1: It was, and maybe with the addition of the three-point line, maybe somebody gets to 100 points one day because they just have, you know, they go like 20 from 20 from three or something and have an unbelievable day. But still, I think that's one of the ones that just
0: never gets broken. Sure, and before we sign off for this episode, Tom, if you had to pick one player in today's NBA that you think maybe could score 100 points, who would you pick?
1: Good question.
0: (laughs) Uh, Devin Booker got
1: to 70-something. I don't think he could do it, though. Steph Curry's getting too old man i don't know if there's anyone
0: like i guess just steph because of his shooting i think a pri- i think a prime steph curry like if he, if they just fed him the ball let him shoot from three i think he could have done it
1: yeah if he puts up say like 30 some three point attempts he, makes like 20 or so you let that 25. man shoot 40
0: or 53s in a game he'll, yeah. he's, he's hitting 30 of them at least
1: right i think he would he would be a logical choice i mean kd he's just so efficient and maybe could have done it but Injuries have always kind of gotten just in the a, way for him lately.
0: Just a different time and time and place, though. I mean, Wilt was playing every minute of every game. He, there, Like I said, he there was eight minutes and 33 seconds of that whole season that he wasn't on the court.
1: Yeah, do you know he never failed out of a game throughout his career?
0: Nope. The, the only, he only missed that 833 because of technical fouls, not actual right, personal fouls. Right, he never fouls. committed
1: six fouls in a game, which yeah, as a big man... As, like as we've said, we've both played basketball. Oh, yeah. It's tough as a big man to not foul someone just because the ref can get very ticky tacky with stuff, or yeah, you feel like you get a block, but because you blocked it too hard, they call a
0: foul. I mean, so I never fouled like out of the game, the but I think that was more because I probably played about ten minutes a game. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's difference, right? <laughs> and not because of my my position, but uh, yeah. So that Tom, great two great stories today. Uh, two legends of their own, own sports, Mickey Mantle and Will Chamberlain. Uh, very fascinating. I think we had some. There's some really great info in there, and love to learn more i wish there was video footage of of wilt's game and, and more of mickey and it's just just very cool and uh, and this is why we do what we do it's there's sports history is just so fascinating and when you really dive into it and learn learn the details you didn't know before it's just a, a really eye-opening experience definitely and it's why we're doing
1: this and i'm looking forward to the more stories coming up and i'm Getting really excited for the upcoming time here in sports. Got the World Baseball Classic starting oh, yeah. in a few weeks. That's going to be great. Hopefully, we can put something together for that for all of you listeners out there. Absolutely. Maybe a full baseball preview episode in itself outside the Phillies. Yeah, Just a couple of things coming up here. Going back, back, back.
0: Keep your eyes and ears peeled. Yeah, Tom and I will definitely be touching on uh, various things. Obviously, baseball is the big one coming up right now. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna get into that World Baseball Classic. Would be awesome. Talk about the MLB season before we actually get there. Uh, more than just Philly specific lot of good content, a lot of good info coming here from Going Back, Back, Back. Follow us and like us on all social medias. Face, well, right now, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Going Back Pod. Um, listen to us wherever you catch your podcast, And keep an eye out. We will be putting these on YouTube as well in the near future. Um, but we really appreciate your support and listening to, to us each week. Please follow us. Share us with your friends, family, lovers, wherever they, wherever you may be, whoever, you may, whoever may be listening. We appreciate it. And We will see you next week. Tom, what do you got for us?
1: And to all of you night owls out there, remember the early bird gets the worm.
0: All right. We'll see you next week.